Hello, and welcome back to Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher, your host for today. And joining me uh, from across the pond is Dr. Lucas Groschner. He is a project leader at the Max Planck Institute for Biological Intelligence, and he's a specialist uh, in um, molecular mechanisms of neural computation. Um, Dr. Groschner, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Hello, thanks for having me. So I guess, you know, to start out, uh, just to talk a little bit about what brings you here. So Max Planck, Florida Institute for Neuroscience, now has a new seminar uh, series where we invite speakers from around the world who are at mostly the, the postdoctoral or sometimes graduate student um, stage. And we're really just giving a platform for, you know, really talented people around the world to share their their uh, research in neural circuits. And so um, this is our, our NeuroMeet series. I think you and I were guessing at what the M-E-E-T-S stands for, but we think it's maybe yes. Max Planck emerging uh, extramural emerging talents seminar exactly series. that's it i think that's yes. great <laughs> perfect um so welcome to florida um hopefully it, it was a nice uh, a nice trip over um what's it like to get uh you know an email saying hey we'd love for you to come check out uh, come over to max planck as a postdoc i mean it it's wonderful like it was a surprise well it wasn't that much of a surprise mm -hmm. since i applied so there you have to apply for this seminar series mm -hmm. See, but, I'm learning. Uh, I, I yet, work here. I don't know all the ins and outs. So you applied. It yeah. was it was still a, a very pleasant surprise when I got an email uh, that you, you'd actually like to invite me. So um, it's a pleasure to be here. That's awesome. Um, well, your work is really fascinating. And, um, you know, I think one of the really surprising aspects when I, you know, was sort of digging it a little bit into your papers and stuff is you're really interested in sort of higher order complex phenomena, like on the level of decision making and also, you know, neural computation of sensory representations. But you also are studying a lot of this yes. down to the but molecular I'm, I'm level. I'm studying it in the fly, yeah, which are not known fly. for higher order complex computations. Yes. But I think we're we're pushing the limits on that front. So it's it's just in a really nice sweet spot, the fly, yeah. where we we know which neurons are involved we have an almost complete connectome of the central brain and also of the the optic lobes soon and uh, this this helps immensely when you want to study the function of neural circuits down to the level of single molecules right. all of which we can address having genetic addresses to to most of the neurons mm -hmm. in the fly brain so we can we can do cell specific knockouts we can do functional imaging on the electrophysiological mm -hmm. recordings in all of these neurons. So that that helps immensely. And I think the fly is capable of sophisticated enough behavior to make it interesting. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of really um, interesting work in flies, you know, making use of kind of the simplicity of like some of the stuff going on at MPFI in Salil Bidet's lab, like fly locomotion, things like that, um, sensory you know, processing in the fly, like a lot of these can take on a lot of the flavors of traditional motor and sensory systems neuroscience. But one thing that's really fascinating about what you've done is, like you said, really get down to the molecular level and look at how changes in gene expression or whatever will, you know, sort of exhibit themselves at the level of behavior. So can we talk a little bit about fly decision making? So <clears throat> going back to your, your PhD sure. work at Oxford, you were sort of looking at how sensory information gets integrated and ultimately culminates in perceptual decision making. So what what does it mean for a fly to make a decision? What was the experimental preparation you were working with? Well, that was be before I started my PhD, there was some groundbreaking postdoctoral work from from Shamik Dasgupta who who was 
so one of the first to study decision making or olfactory decision making in the fruit flies um, at, at, at the new lev level of detail. And before that, people would sometimes think that these fruit flies act more or less impulsively. And he was the first to show that they actually integrate sensory information over time. So not all the sensory information that we have in our noisy environment is available, available to us uh, at one instant. So we need to take usually sequential sampling. So sequential samples, this, this comes from sort of signal detection theory. So clear cut, easy decisions are quick and more difficult decisions in the face of ambiguous evidence will usually take longer times to integrate. And um, they were at Oxford the first to show that in an olfactory decision that the fruit fly seems to do the, the same thing. And I followed up on that using physiology and looking at what the neurons involved in this decision making do in the lead up to a perceptual judgment. So can you, can you describe the experimental setup a little bit just to sort of paint the picture like what is the fly doing what is the what is the information that the the fly is integrating over time and, and what is the behavioral outcome sure so the experimental paradigm we used is an sort of we, we we put we trained the fly using electric shock to avoid an odor of a certain concentration hmm. and then we gave the flies each of them housed individually in a long chamber um, perfused with air, we gave them the choice between the reinforced odor in one half of the chamber and the second half of the chamber contained the very same odor but at a slightly different concentration. And by titrating the concentration ratio between the two sides of the chamber, we could make the decision easier or more difficult for the fly to know where it should go in order to avoid being electrocuted. So basically as two choices go to the concentration level where you're going to get a shock and go to the concentration level where you're safe and you can make that difficult or easy by basically exactly. making it really yes. a big difference or really small difference exactly yeah. big difference would be an easy decision and we wanted to push it close to psychophysical thresholds this is what's interesting to me this is where the fly really starts to um, uh, usually people don't don't like it if i say that the fly contemplates but there's some neural processing going on that takes time before the fly decides one way or another and were you able to tap into that sort of you know uh accumulation of evidence i don't know what the, the yes, best way to yes, do yes yes i was by recording I mean, we, we knew already which neurons were involved in in, in this <coughs> decision making process and uh, i started I, I was the first in, in the lab to successfully do in vivo whole cell patch clamp recordings of these neurons and i did this while presenting the fly with more or less the same um concentration ratios that we had used in the behavioral paradigm and then i looked at uh, what these neurons were doing during this accumulation period very cool and but you didn't stop there right so like there's uh you know a number of regulators of how these cells are functioning presumably what, what are some of the manipulations you were able to do in the fly to sort of um determine how genes sort of mediate that process or make it happen appro yeah. appropriately so so we knew already that there's we, we had found already an indecisive fly so that is one fly that would spend a lot longer before it made up its mind and that was a mutant in a so it had a mutation in a the transcript of a, a sort of a transcription factor gene which is called fox p or four cat box p transcription factor develop developmental transcription factor gene and 
we we used those mutants a lot then we we compared them with wild type flies so this gene regulates um the expression of some specific types of potassium channels is that yes right? we we found that uh, shall so shaker cognate l and a type potassium channel is repressed by the transcription factor of fox p and in the absence of fox p there is an excess of this um, ion channel which made the neurons themselves more leaky so the time constants of these neurons decreased which made the made it harder for the fly to acquire olfactory evidence over so time. So th this is like a, a leak potassium channel? Is that exactly. What, what, what you yes. So basically when the cell is like depolarized, it'll sort of hyperpolarize faster. Is that exactly, yeah. Okay. You, you can, if you, if you think of this sort of memory as something, water accumulating in a bucket, for example, what, what we had in the form of this ion channel were holes in the bucket. Mm -hmm. So we were able to, to plug these holes by overexpressing a dominant negative version of this ion channel, which for, formed dysfunctional channels. And then the flies, the, the bucket would fill up more quickly again, and the flies sped up their decisions again. That's fascinating to me because, you know, normally when I think about decision making, uh, I think about maybe a human or a monkey, and it's sort of playing a, a, a video game, like especially in <clears throat> neurophysiological research, it's playing some kind of video game where it has to sort of like maybe, you know, deal with noisy sensory information or something like this. And you're, you're thinking about the level of like higher order cognition where you have this vast network of lots of neurons that are encoding these representations. And here what you've basically done is by going to the molecular level said like, actually, you know, you have a leaky bucket and you want to make it less leaky. That's essentially what it comes down to. Yes. Um, Although I have to say, I'm not, I'm not sure in how far this is generalizable. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in primates or in any other higher mammals, we think that this sort of working memory depends on recurrent connections um, within circuits. We, we know very little about what influences sort of temporal processes on the order of, sort of hundreds of milliseconds up to seconds, this sort of classical decision-making mm -hmm. um, time range. And this might be quite different because we have a lot more neurons and this might be sort of this, the, the fact that single neurons or the time constants of single neurons dictate the times that animals take to make a decision might be something fairly unique to flies. I, we don't know about that. I guess another way that this, you know, sort of resonates with me is a lot of times when you think about, um, you know, developmental or neuropsychiatric disorders in humans, a lot of times, you know, these are you know, associated with specific genes that maybe have like a complex um, set of, you know, uh, consequences when they're mutated or, or disrupted. Um, but a lot of times when you are saying, I, I have, you know, say this mouse model of schizophrenia, you might be doing electron microscopy studies looking at the level of like, you know, expression of different types of receptors or channels or something in a synapse. And but, un, you know, it's very difficult to then link that in a mouse from those specific channelopathies or expression changes to, you know, high order behavioral changes. In the fly, it seems like that's a little bit more controlled. It, it, it seems more controlled to me as well. I mean, the one big advantage of the fly is also that it has a lot of the disease or homologs of a lot of the disease relevant genes that we we have in, in humans or mammals. But it usually doesn't have so many paralogs. So there's just one gene that that has a function and then there's not three gene copies that might actually take over or compensate if you if you have a knockout 
um, which makes it much more cleaner to investigate the function of, of single genes in flies, um, at least in my opinion. So when you're writing up your, you know, your research grants, you know, say for, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe European Research Council or in the States, it would be like the NIH or something like that. Yeah. What are the sort of, you know, uh, putative impacts of this type of work? Like, what, what, where do you, like, are you developing a mouse model, or sorry, a fly model of X, like disease yes. X or no, something like that? No, I am not. I mean, what I do is purely curiosity-driven research. I want to understand neural computations in detail. And I think, I mean, this is also what the philosophy of the Max Planck Society is. Mm -hmm. we, we need to first know how it works before we start treating it or something. And oftentimes we, we don't know what, what will come out in the end. Yeah. Um, this is what I do, and this is luckily what some of the research funders also in Europe are happy to fund, like the ERC you mentioned. Um, others, not so much. And I, uh, so far, I got away without being too translational. I don't need to justify or I don't need to cure human diseases in order in order to get funded. Yeah, certainly. So far, at least. Uh, but this is in stark contrast to my education in medicine. So I, I, I studied medicine in Austria. Um, but since then, I gradually moved away um, yeah, from, so, from the bad side. So I, I wanted to ask about that because you you started out pursuing your medical degree in Austria. What what sort of led you to pivot more towards, you know, basic science research? I, th I think I was always interested in basic science. My there was a lot of paternal influence to study medicine or and also my biology teacher in, in school convinced me to apply to the to the program and you had to do an entrance exam and um, then when the biochemistry entrance exam came along I was on vacation so I I, I ended up having an entry ticket for for medicine so I, I studied medicine but throughout my studies I, I spent long nights in a, in a biochemical or a molecular biology lab cell biology lab doing physiological experiments and that's what what got me interested and that not so much in neuroscience though that was mostly uh, cell biology in the beginning and then wh where where did the sort of um the the drive to to pursue a phd in neuroscience related research go to come from um th that's a long story so <laughs> i <laughs> i i I, I, I went to Oxford at some point to learn a new technique. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't end up learning that technique, but I, I, I did quite but a, you got a, a, a spent quite a successful sort of summer internship um, at Oxford, and then I decided to apply for a PhD position there. Um, also focused on, on endocrinology and metabolism. I, I, I did whole cell recordings in, in isolated pancreatic islets. Um, and from there, I, we, we had a practical there. So I got accepted into the, this was a Wellcome Trust funded program. I got accepted and they forced us to do first lab rotations in the first year and practical courses. And I remember there was a practical course. We also had to do practical courses in neuroscience. And I always thought of neuroscientists as slightly arrogant, to be <laughs> honest. So we had one, I remember one tutor whose opinion was that, uh, the whole purpose of the remaining organs in the body was to, to keep the to brain alive, the brain. <laughs> to support the brain. And I, I always found that uh, slightly an, an unpleasant attitude. Um, and while I had been at uh, Oxford 
for the first time, I remember there was a talk by Gero Miesenbach in, in Graz. Uh, and I was quite annoyed that I had to sit in Oxford while this professor from Oxford is giving a talk in Graz, which sounded <laughs> extremely interesting. Um, and then my supervisor at the time, Patrick Roseman, suggested that, that I should do a lab rotation in his lab. And I had read some of his papers, which are written in an incredibly beautiful, clear, and cogent way. So in a way, you could say that it, it was literature or scientific literature rather than uh, neurons that drew me to neuroscience. Interesting. And, and he was doing these decision-making studies in fruit flies at the time. I, I did a lab rotation and I, I, I saw the light. So since then, I, I moved to, to neuroscience. That's really interesting because it kind of illustrates that, you know, there's not like a single... <clears throat> linear trajectory you need to find yourself on or some conveyor belt that's going to get you from point A to a career in neuroscience. Like, it seems like you really were just sort of um, following your intellectual interests and maybe like, you know, trying to pick yes. up some skills here and there that were like relevant to what you were interested in. And then you were just sort of following your nose for like what seems, you know, scientifically rigorous, like elegant in terms of its experimental design a and that sort of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a winding path in, in my case. And I was just attracted by sort of the the beauty of a well-done experiment. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's inspiring. So, you know, following up on your, your PhD work, you did do your PhD with Miesenbach, is that correct? Yes. You stayed in the, the fly domain, you know, moving into your postdoctoral work, right? So it seems now you're sort of like, you've, you've got this sort of, um, at this point in your career, like sort of toolbox of like uh, experimental techniques and approaches and questions that you're interested in. Um, but of course, going to a new lab means focusing on new types of questions. What were you interested in pursuing in the postdoctoral work that you hadn't really had much time to work yes. on in the PhD work? I mean, I, I came quite well equipped in terms of techniques, uh, not changing model organism. I felt like I, I, I had worked with, with rats and mice before my PhD, uh, and I felt like Drosophila was really a nice organism to work with. And I just changed from the olfactory to the visual system. And much of what attracted me, again, in this case, um, from to, to, to Alexander Borst at the Max Planck Institute of Neurobiology in, in Martinsried was uh, also the, the clarity in, in which he broke down very complex circuits or co complex computations into very uh, comparatively simple, simple explanations. Uh, th that's what attracted me, and, and, and in particular, the hassenstein reichardt detector, which is a model of motion vision that's been around for a very long time and that's inspired quite a lot of neuroscientists. Can you break that model down a little bit? Like, what, are, what, what does it sort of suppose is the, the necessary components yes. for a motion detection? That, that's a little funny because it's a bit of a déjà vu. Um, I've, if, if you listen to your, your podcast, episode 51... Uh, oh, my gosh. ...with, with Bert Sackman, uh, <laughs> when you interviewed him... What he said is what, what attracted him to, to neuroscience was the Rikert detector. It, it makes me glad that we're doing this podcast. So, um, okay, so just to set this up, your, your, how, how many years ago was this, would you say, this story? Two years ago. It was 2020, yes. Okay, so the, the year is 2020. Um, <laughs> Lucas Groschner is uh, working in a dark room at the, at the bench. 
you're listening to the Neurotransmissions podcast. And just describe what is the experiment that you're working on. At this exactly. Point? Yes, I'm, I'm sitting in a dark room with my sort of the light of my stereo microscope on, slaving away on cutting small holes in the brains of flies attached to perfusion <laughs> chambers. Um, and sometimes when, when you do that as a graduate student, you you end up in a pile of self-doubt uh, <laughs> about your project and about uh, about science in general. And then I listened to this episode of, of, of your podcast interviewing uh, Bert Sackmann, who says that what sparked a, a Nobel laureate uh, and, and someone who influenced contemporary neuroscience mm -hmm. uh, in, in a very profound way. And he said that what initially sparked his interest in the neural sciences uh, was the Reichert detector. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this, this circuit that I was investigating at, at the time that wh where I was using his technique, the whole cell patch clamp technique to record from, from neurons of the circuit that sparked his interest in neuroscience. And that gave me an incredible boost in, in confidence, uh, a, a boost that uh, even led me to include this uh, and and a link to your podcast in the cover letter I, I wrote for for the research. So at the time, uh, Bert Sackmann said that his his friend Axel Borst was currently investigating uh, this, and now only after after thirty years of intense investigation, they're on the verge of solving this problem. Uh, and so you're you're actually working on this problem uh, at the microscope while you're listening to this thing, like Bert Sackman yes, exactly. telling you that yes, like you're yes. about you can, to you solve can imagine it. How, how my heart started beating, <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden I, I was I, I got spurred um, and I I regained all my motivation, um, and yeah, th 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 that's what led me also to to include this in our cover letter. So I hope that it might even spark the editor's interest and somehow it worked. That's really great. Uh, so we get, you know, listener feedback from time to time and it's usually pretty heartwarming, but this is this is up there with one some of the best listener feedback um, I've had since I started this podcast. I, I love it. Uh, it's sometimes when you're when you're a postdoc or a graduate student and you're locked up uh, for for a very long time in a dark room, this is this is a glimmer of hope okay. or, or something. So that's cool. That's Maybe really we can great. inspire some some listening graduate students now. For sure. And hey, um, if, yo, if we have any other listeners out there who are uh, you know interested in being on the podcast, get on that NeuroMeets um, tip. Get the get those applications, and we'll we'll get you on the podcast. Yes, um, that's great. So okay, so, um, so rewind right to episode fifty one. But I guess <laughs> no, in, in, it in is brief. it is about motion uh, vision. So a single photoreceptor of the eye, a single light sensitive cell, cannot detect the direction of visual motion. All it reports to postsynaptic neurons or to downstream neuropils are changes in luminance. So in order to detect the direction of visual motion, you need to consider the signals of at least two adjacent photoreceptors. Mm -hmm. And what Hassenstein and Reichardt suggested in the 1950s uh, was that you can first delay the signal of one photoreceptor and then compare it with the signal of the adjacent photoreceptor, which has not been delayed. So if um, you, you need to look at the sequence in which these photoreceptors are activated. Uh, so you activate one before the other. One is delayed and coincides with the other at a postsynaptic neuron. And to detect this coincidence, you need a nonlinearity. This can be either a multiplicative nonlinearity, a multiplication like Hassenstein and Reichert originally suggested, or it can be a division like a few years after that, Barlow and <coughs> Levick suggested based on recordings of direction-selective 
retinal ganglion cells in the rabbit retina. And in, in the fly, it seems to be a combination of these two mechanisms. And in my postdoctoral work, I looked at the molecular underpinnings of this multiplicative interaction of two synaptic inputs, which is something I think that has general relevance uh, to neuroscience, uh, because you, you, you often want to uh, make one input dependent on the other, just like here, the output of the, the motion detector depends on the, a specific sequence of input neurons or of, of activation of input neurons. And then I guess part of the challenge for, you know, having that information like accurately encode uh, motion at the circuit level really is, it's sort of a developmental problem or like a, a pathfinding problem for axons from the, the retina, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. That's a, this is a beautiful, one of the most beautiful uh, developmental problems that I've encountered so far. You need this post-synaptic direction selective neuron needs to receive input from, from different, uh, uh, well, photoreceptors or in, in the case of the fly, it's actually for three neurons down uh, the line. But uh, in in this case, we, we have we have a very retinotopic system in the fly, and that's also in the retina, obviously, um, where where these neurites are all intermingled, and each each sort of column, which corresponds to one facet in the in the fly eyes, or one of these uh, omatidia, uh, each of them contain the full complement of neurons. There's there's a a whole battery of neurons inside one of these columns, and yet. Uh, there is a neuron that innovates multiple of these columns and selects its presynaptic partners simply depending on the position where its dendrite resides. Hmm. So if you wanna if you wanna detect the sequence of inputs, um, you you have to sample from different presynaptic neurons. So from a slow neuron, the delay line, uh, on, on one arm of your dendrite, on the, on the other side of your dendrite, you need to sample from a fast neuron. You have one neuron that's selecting from like a presynaptic pool of four neurons or something like that. Can you start from For, for example, yeah. yeah. In our case, it's more, but let's simplify it. Let's say there's, there's two presynaptic neurons. There's a, a slow neuron and a fast neuron. Um, if if the the slow and the fast neuron sort of the presence of these neurons would depend on where on the eye um, the neuron sits, then we would have really poor spatial resolution. So each pixel of the camera, if if you will, mm -hmm. that the, is the fly eye, um, informs neurons that are fast and slow, and the postsynaptic direction selective neurons need to sample both from fast and from slow neurons, um, input neurons. Uh, in a spatially dependent manner. So they need to sample, for example, for from a fast neuron in one pixel and from a delayed neuron in the adjacent pixel. Even though the adjacent pixel, the adjacent column, also contains both fast and slow neurons. Um, so it is still a mystery on, on how this is done. And there's, there's uh, people in our lab working on this, and there's uh, Larry Sipersky at UCLA working on this. So. Uh, there is there is a lot of highly specific wiring uh, wiring of this system that uh, we don't understand how it is done and this is still a mystery and I think until we understand this we won't will not fully understand how this is computed. One question I have for you is like you know you have this sort of like progressive body of work. You're at a, a stage now. Maybe you're sort of like a, a you know 
approaching the end of when you would be a postdoc or something yes like yes that. i'm applying for faculty positions right yeah. now so yeah. how are you thinking about the next phase of your career in terms of um the types of departments you're applying to or like the types of questions you're interested in in pursuing how you're mm -hmm. sort of pitching yourself and your you know your future lab to universities or institutes um i think a lot of people out there probably are thinking all the time like what's my next step what's, mm. what am i going to do but then when you get to the stage you're at now if you're applying you're you're thinking very seriously about yes um, you need to have a concept a of what you want to do in the future yeah so given your past history working in the fly and the different types of questions you've been involved in what is that pitch like what are in, what the, are in the short term i would like to stay in the fly partly for the reasons that i need funders to to be confident that i know what i'm doing mm -hmm. and i know what i'm working with so i want to uh, as a first step investigate temporal processing in drosophila like i mentioned before there's sort of a the the, the brain processes temporal signals over a range of at least nine orders of magnitude and we have a fairly good understanding uh, of the mechanisms that account for some of the processing on the lower range of this spectrum so action potentials synaptic potentials and on the other end of the spectrum there are transcriptional oscillators circadian rhythms plasticity development but there's a large gap in between where we know very little about the mechanisms and i think that this can be investigated in, in drosophila using all the tools available um, much of this relies on recurrent connectivity. The problem is in, in, in the cortex, somewhat everything connects to everything. Or, and that's not true, but uh, it, there's a, a lot of complexity in, in, in higher uh, animals. And in Drosophila, we know exactly what connects to what, and we have access to these neurons, and we can record from them under naturalistic conditions in vivo. So we also have transcriptomes. We know which molecules and these these cells express uh, so this is a wonderful system to study at the biophysical and at the molecular basis how temporal signals are, are processed at the intermediate uh, intermediate time scales yeah. well that's great so for any faculty search committees out there that are listening um uh, let's hit up my guy dr groschner um fascinating research um dr groschner thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today i'm really looking forward to your talk tomorrow and uh the rest of your visit here in florida thank you very much right, it was a pleasure you. this has been a production by the max planck florida institute for neuroscience you can listen in on itunes or soundcloud follow us on facebook or on twitter at neuropodcast